Hi, this is Sedge Thompson. Welcome to this special audio highlights podcast from West Coast Live. For more information about our shows and other guests and podcasts, wcl.org. I can't imagine living on a tiny platform hundreds of feet into the air in a redwood tree, right. as our next guest did, something that she started in December of 1997, volunteering to do a tree sit in a redwood tree to help preserve some of the last redwoods uh, from clear cutting. And she went up and she found herself staying two years and she came down this past December. Will you please welcome Julia Butterfly Hill to West Coast Live, a woman who has written a book called The Legacy of Luna, the story of a tree, a woman, and the struggle to save the redwoods. Welcome. Thank you very much for uh, coming in. I know you've got a full schedule today of Earth Day activities and talks and speeches. You've become kind of a celebrity as a result of all of this as well. Well, I, I truly believe that the world does care. The world does care about the environment. It's not something separate from us. It is us. And I think the success of the Lunar Tree Sit Action is, brings hope back into our lives because there are a lot of issues, a lot of very dangerous and critical issues facing our world. And so to see that as individuals we can make positive and powerful change really sparks other people. I think one of the, one of the most amazing parts of your account, too, is, is a surviving a night where, you know, in, in a time when you know, a helicopter was swirling intensely around you in the backwash, spinning that tree. Thanks for reminding me. <laughs> yeah, the, um, it was interesting because it was Pacific Lumber Maxim Corporation is the corporation that I was and continue to protest because their practices are so destructive. They not only are destroying the last 3% of the ancient redwoods, but they go in with seven-foot chainsaws, clear-cut into the ground, looks like a lawnmower has gone over it, and then they light it on fire with diesel fuel or napalm. And when they're done, it's literally a black, charred scar. And technology has really enabled them to go in and cut down trees where they w wouldn't used to be able to get them out. And one of the ways they do that is twin propeller helicopters. And they subcontract out to Columbia Helicopter based in Oregon to do this work. And those helicopters have nearly 300 mile an hour updrafts that they hovered right above my head. And it was a very intense time for me to know that I literally could die if it turned a few inches in either direction and that my hands were in the life of the men piloting that helicopter. The, uh, when you weren't there, I mean, when those helicopters weren't there and you were on your own, can you describe sort of sounds at that level of forest canopy that you would hear? Sure. I think uh, the first thing I have to do is clear some things up, though, because I think a lot of people thought that I was living in a beautiful forest uh, fairy tale land in the lotus position, oming and contemplating the meaning of the universe. <laughs> And it was an active logging plan. So there was a lot of logging going on. There was, I was about not even two miles as the crow flies from the Pacific Lumber Max M mill that takes these ancient forests and cuts them down to become somebody's deck or a sauna or a hot tub. So there was a lot of noise from that. I was about two and a half miles straight up over Highway 101 in California. So I also heard the sounds of cars. But it was at nighttime when the sounds would really come through. And uh, there were great horned owls and ravens that would talk to each other all the time. And I got to the point where I could mimic them. And 
I would talk with them. And at first they'd stop and they'd listen and they'd talk back and then they realized even though I could make the sounds, I didn't know what the heck I was saying. <laughs> so they would ignore me and go back to talking to each other. So thus, night times were when the, when the clearest sounds came out. And first thing early in the morning, the area I was in was a migratory spot for birds. And there were, there were mornings where there would be 50 different kinds of birds surrounding me singing in honor of the beautiful creation that we all live in. The uh, trees have always seemed to me to, uh, I mean, redwoods have a very sort of dominating presence in the forest. You know, they, they dominate the soil. They take the nutrients out of it. The ground cover under them is, is a very specific kind of ecosystem. And there are certain creatures that inhabit it. And it always has seemed to me when I walk in those forests that the trees somehow communicate, that there's a way that the branches touch and intermingle that you know, has them in communication in some way. I don't know what it is, but I've always believed that about those forests. Absolutely. And, and that's usually when we start talking about trees and plants communicating, that's when mainstream society starts rolling their eyes and going, oh, no, here comes the granola munchers and the new agers, here it comes. But, you know, there's even now scientific proof to back up that plants communicate, although we shouldn't need that proof. We should just honor the fact that, of course, life communicates. That how, that's how things survive. That's how things interact. So, of course, they communicate. And I learned it when they began cutting down trees all around me, hitting, they were cutting trees directly at the tree I was in, Luna, and hitting Luna, trying to, I guess, scare me out. And uh, they, first morning I was up there, December 11th, 1997, they cut the two babies growing right out of her trunk. They were 100 feet tall babies. And when they began doing that, the redwood trees are sap-bearing. And when I would climb around in the beginning, before they were cutting a lot, there were times when it would get on me. But when they started massively cutting everything down around me, I was climbing around and I hugged the tree and I began crying because I felt ashamed to be living in a society where 97% of the ancient redwoods have been destroyed and yet we're still allowing them to be cut down. And when I sat up, I realized I was covered in sap everywhere, in my hair, all over my body. And as I was climbing around, I could literally see it pouring out. And it hit me that this was like the trees communicating their grief. That grief is something that clings to us. It's not something you can just rub away. It clings to you and eventually becomes a part of who you are. And that that's what was happening with these trees. And sure enough, there's, the sap is literally how they communicate. It's how they send healing. It's how they send communication through their roots and through the trees. And it's a way that they keep enemies away, too. I mean, it's also part of a defense system. It is. You know, one of the shocking sights, if you fly across the, the west and, and, and north of here and, and across Oregon, Washington, Alaska, even Canada, is, is the extent of, of clear-cutting and what an ugly scar on the landscape it is. You know, certainly one of the major issues in Alaska, too, are those rainforests up there that are being cut. And uh, there are vast areas that have been uh, sort of devastated in this way. I mean, the, the Part of it is the mechanization of what's able to be done. I mean, logging has gone on over there for hundreds of years, but it never had quite the mechanized efficiency that it does now. Absolutely. A lot of people have heard about Amir Woods right outside of San Francisco, and the only reason it's there is because they couldn't get the trees out because they didn't have the technology at that time to get them out. And so it was left there because they couldn't do anything with it and then later deeded to the people. And now we're seeing that if that area hadn't been protected, the technology now could easily pull it out of there. The, I think that a lot of time timber industry likes to say things, well, trees are a renewable resource. Trees are, forests are not. Half of the world's original forests have been destroyed. 
and we're destroying original forest at the size of Poland every year around the world. That's how much original forest land we destroy every single year. And it's funny for them to say, well, we can replant trees and they're renewable because why are 97% of the original redwoods gone if they're so renewable? So I really believe we're at a point in time in society where we have to step back and slow down and think, okay, we really have taken more than our share. And now how are we going to live with what we've already taken and how are we going to find a way of healing what we've destroyed and protecting the last of what is left of our wild places? There are people who protest the, the logging of forests in, in Brazil and are readily killed. I mean, they disappear. Um, and I know that fear for your life was, was part of this experience and there have been people killed in this, in this struggle. Uh, but somehow it seems that there's still some re final reluctance on the part of, of uh, lumber industry people to actually go out and you know, take somebody out in a way. They'll try to intimidate you to the most extreme level but they won't disappear you in some way. Well, um, you know, they, they did cut down a tree on top of an activist, David Gypsy Chain from Austin, Texas, who was trying to stop what was indeed an illegal harvest plan, was later proven to be out of, against the law, one of over 300 violations of this particular company, Pacific Lumber. And they cut down trees with activists in it. They, I think what happens is it's very, we have to step back from the company here and look at individuals and human beings. As human beings, we have the power to do the greatest good or the greatest bad in each and every one of us. There's a, there's, we look and we, we look at people like Charles Hurwitz, who's the CEO of Maxam Corporation, and it's easy to say, oh, he's horrid and he's bad and he's evil. But at the same time, it's our choices that decide the shape of the world. And we can all choose to destroy the planet or we can choose to save it. We have the power. What are we going to do? And so in situations where timber fallers feel that their way of life is threatened, it's easier to hate and to strike out at an activist than it is to take a stand against a corporation that's destroying their way of life. Pacific Lumber operated for over 100 years as a family-run business. Yes, there was some environmental degradation and devastation, but, and they needed some help, but they were so much more closer to what true sustainability is than Max Am is. He came in and in some cases doubled and in some cases tripled the rate of cut in the forest. So not only is he destroying the forest and the environment, he's destroying these communities and their way of life. And they don't know what to do, so they strike out at the easiest object. There was a conversation that you developed with the, uh, the manager of the Pacific Lumber Company on the site. I mean, that started out, I imagine, sort of hostile, but also there was, it seemed that there was a, a connection that grew between the two of you. It was the president of Pacific Lumber, John Campbell. The CEO of Maxim Corporation, Charles Hurwitz, still refuses to talk to me, although on May 24th is a shareholders meeting, and I will be there. 8.30 in the morning in Texas? <laughs> yes. <laughs> and... Uh, it's the one time a year that he's mandated to sit in front of people and look them in the eye and see what he's doing to the planet and to people's lives, and he will hear. Um, but with the president of Pacific Lumber, for a long time, he refused to speak to me as well. Then after about seven months, we finally broke through and started communicating. And in the beginning, he always sounded like his press release. And uh, the, the Maxam Corporation has a nearly $4 million a year public relations firm that spews out loads of paper with so-called information on it. And he would just always speak that rhetoric and that language of his printout, and I would always say, you know, when you want to be human with me, give me a call, here's my number. 
because I'm not into, I, I really believe that our hope for humanity is to find our common ground, to find the humanity within us, to let go of our rhetoric and our, our stereotypes and our labels and our computer printouts and say, okay, our common ground is this planet that we share, the air that we drink, I mean the air that we breathe, excuse me, the water that we drink. Air is getting... It depends if it's raining. <laughs> In the rainforest where I lived, you could drink the air. Um, well, let me, let me, can I jump back to this humanity question? I'm interested in what it was when you said that there was a breakthrough between, between the two of you. I mean, how did you sense it? What, what went on uh, you know, at that moment? When did you each sort of recognize that maybe you were beginning to talk in a different way? Well, I really kept telling him over and over again um, when he would start, like, it literally sounded like he had a piece of paper in front of him and he was just reading down the lines. And every time I'd say, I will not engage with you in this way. And it's not going to get us anywhere. And I told him one day, I said, you know, John Campbell, if you try and come to me this way, we will never agree because you are driven by your love for money and I am driven by a love for life. And because of that, we will never see eye to eye if you keep coming from that standpoint of reading your, your printout of why your company is supposedly so good. What I want to talk to you about is let's get human, let's get real, and let's find a solution to protect this area. And so over time, he started, you know, he knew that I wouldn't engage in that back and forth, and so he would start getting human with me. I don't remember exactly what time it was but in the year, but eventually it started being he was telling me about his children and they were graduating from college and where they were going on vacation. And it, at that time, to be able to let go of the anger at what he and his company are doing to the earth and just say, you know, even in this person is a piece of creation. There is nature in this human, just as there's nature in all of us, and I want to honor that nature. And I really believe that was, that was pivotal in us being able to come to an agreement. Are you still in touch with him? We've been playing phone tag. <laughs> He's a very busy man, and I've been an extremely busy woman since coming down. Uh, we definitely want to, to meet together. I want to be able to tell him thank you for doing the good things. I wrote them a letter, uh, he and John, John Campbell and Charles Hurwitz, CEO of Maxam Corporation. I did many over the years I was up there. And during the final stages of the negotiations, they both got real dirty. They started playing really dirty. and that really frustrated me because it's very hard to honor the good in people when they won't honor it within themselves. And uh, I wrote them letters both and I told them thank you because my message is ultimately about love, love in action, love in commitment, love in the face of adversity and violence. And so they were really putting it to the test. <laughs> and so I wrote them letters and told them thank you for making me really hold strong to my beliefs and putting it to the test. And then after I came down, I, I sent him a letter that said, thank you for agreeing to permanently protect this over 1,000-year-old ancient redwood and the grove around it, but I want you to know that my protest isn't over. My voice is just going to get louder, and I'm going to continue demanding that you stop clear-cutting, that you stop spraying diesel fuel, napalm, and herbicide, that you stop cutting down the old growth, and that you work with us to create truly sustainable practices. What, um It's, uh, it's clear you guys are polarized. Um, <laughs> um, and they, uh, I mean, and, and no doubt part of their frustration was that here was a human being sitting in a tree they wanted to tumble. How do we get her out of there? You know? Absolutely. Um, what, uh, what, have, what, have you, what have you taken away from I mean, do you see yourself now as somebody who will take on you know, businesses anywhere who are doing harm to the earth, or, I mean, people are seeking you out to be a representative, a spokesperson. I mean, how do you, I mean, you, you chose this particular cause, kind of like raising your hand, I'll sit in the tree for a few weeks, 
you know, and it turned into something else. I mean, so how, and you clearly have got some of your father's preaching, you know, capability here. I mean, what, how do you, how do you see, you know, how do you pick your next battle? Well, number one, I believe in the power of manifesting our, our reality, including our words and our thoughts. So I won't use words like battle, because if I say the word battle, then I'm only going to create that scenario, because that's what happens. How can we say something like battle and not have it happen? Um, I really believe in solutions. Uh, my word, instead of being a revolutionary, I believe in being resolutionaries that we have a lot of problems in our world, but we also have the solutions. We don't need any more science. We don't, definitely don't need any more politicians. We have the solutions. And it begins in our daily lives. So my activism right now is, is working with people to understand our power as individuals. I think uh, I was raised with this thing about if not to point, because it's not to polite to point. And so as I was pointing at corporations like Max Am and government officials like Governor Grave Davis, who in his campaign promise said he would work to ensure that all old growth was protected and as of yet has done nothing to keep his word. The governor of California, he was elected by us. We have to demand that he keep his word. But even as we point to him, <laughs> other people agree. <laughs> but even as we point to him at that, we have to recognize that there's three fingers pointing back every time we point out. And so I believe that as we point at what's wrong, we have to embody what's right. And I believe those three fingers stand for power, responsibility, and love. That we have the power to change the world because everything we do and say changes the world. From what we buy to what we carry around. Do we go out and get coffee in a disposable paper cup or do we bring a mug around with us everywhere we go? Do those small actions, how can we say you're a bad corporation and you're a bad government if we're not being a part of the solutions in our daily lives? And that that's where it starts, and then the activism grows from there. Getting active, if you're willing to put your body on the line, do it. If you can't do that, call your congresspeople and bug them to death. Write letters to the editor, everything you know to do. Did you speak this way two years ago before you went up on the tree? <laughs> I mean, did you know all of this stuff? I learned a couple of lifetimes in that tree. When, when I first climbed up into the tree, all I knew was what I had seen, was that the ancient redwoods were being devastated. And that should be enough for any of us. We shouldn't need more information than that. We have it right here in front of our eyes. But more than that, too, I was one of those people who thought that recycling and signing petitions could save the planet. And they're really, really, really important. People must do that, but it's not enough. We, we really are facing a world where leaders and corporations are joining hands in hand and taking more of the rights of all life and all species away and dumping the responsibility on us and our children and their children. So we have to learn, we have to inform ourselves and we have to get active and say, no, it's not okay. You cannot place money above life. You cannot place money above the air we breathe and the water we drink and this planet that we all share and call home. You, you, come, you came out of this experience, it sounds, with a great deal of, of hope and also a sense of, of, of direction for yourself. What, illusion was, was shattered during this time? I mean, was there anything in the environmental movement that disappointed you? That, uh, you know, that, you know, was there an environmental organization that you took issue with? I mean, was there something that you said, hey, there's something also not right there? I was extremely naive when I climbed into the tree. I thought I was only going to be there three weeks to a month, and it turned into 738 days. Uh, so I had a lot to learn. I had never done direct action in my life. That's the first time I've ever taken direct action in my life. And it's not the last and it won't be the last, but it was the first. And I learned a lot. I learned about environmental movements. I learned a lot about the media. I think the media was probably the more painful than dealing with Max Am Corporation, to be honest with you. Mainstream media, especially. I'm definitely mainstream media. 
Um, but what I learned was that every time I, I saw a problem in a, in a group or in media or something, I tried to find the solution, that I, I really, really believe in focusing on the solutions and just learning from my mistakes as well, because I've certainly made quite a few. I mean, you were in essence camping up there, I mean, all this time. I mean, were, were there some personal skills that, that, that you found? <laughs> How to live on a platform that's six by eight, 180 feet up with tarps for roof and walls and climbing around on the tree for exercise. And it was really phenomenal because it really taught me to live simply. And by living simply, <laughs> I know that's an understatement. <laughs> but through living simply, it taught me the joy of living simply. I really believe that society has told us that our joy in life has to come from how much things we have. What kind of car do we drive? What kind of jewelry do we wear? What kind of clothes do we wear? What kind of house do we live in? That our, our whole value as human beings is based on things. But did you, I mean, in the course of that, I mean, you learned how to climb a tree, probably. I, I mean, grew two, I grew up with two brothers. I learned to climb a tree a long time ago. But there were times when you were fearful. I mean, you were up there without a safety rope. I mean, you had to learn how to hold on to the bark of this tree. Um, you weren't always invisible. I mean, you weren't invisible. Uh, I mean, people were always watching you and looking after you. So it wasn't like you were also isolated in a way. Um, uh, you probably you learned how to cook in a different way. Yes, everything. Everything in life that I took for granted was taken away from me. And so it was a challenge to, to rethink and, and learn every moment of every day. Everything was a learning lesson. And as a result, I, my, I believe in prayer whether you pray to God or Allah or Shiva or Buddha, or you don't even believe in a higher power, but I believe that prayer is about manifesting our intent in the world. And so I believe that if we put that intention out there and we're willing to be open and we're willing to receive the answer, which is usually the hard part about prayer, uh, that the answers can be phenomenal, can come from anywhere. And so I pray that every breath that enters my body be a prayer so that that way I can learn from everything in my living situations, the wind, the rain, the animals, the tree, everything. Luna will live for what, another 1,500 years, you think? If nature allows, yes. And if man, Luna and the area around it can never be touched again. It's under a deed of covenant that's held by Sanctuary Forest Land Trust permanently into perpetuity. It doesn't matter who it gets sold to, it will always be protected. And it'll be able to be protected to live and die by nature's laws and say, see, we can do it. We can live with nature and we can protect the last of our priceless treasures. Well, thank you for doing what you did. Julia Butterfly Hill, author and activist. She'll be speaking today at the San Francisco Earth Day Festival and Civic Center, and then back again here in Berkeley for Earth Day 2000 in Civic Center, uh, Civic Center Park. Her book is called The Legacy of Luna, The Story of a Tree, a Woman, and The Struggle to Save the Redwoods. I have to say on the back here, it says, Respect Your Elders, part of your sign. I thought, I initially saw that, I said, Respect Your Alders. <laughs> Them too. Them too. Hey, thank you very much. Julia Butterfly. Uh, thank you very much. This is Edge Thompson. Thanks for listening to this podcast. Try out others from West Coast Live right here, and we look forward to having you in one of our audiences one day. For more information, wcl.org.